This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the hell is going on? Covering the big ideas. If you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save lives. The tough choices. Guacamole? No, I like guacamole. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box jury box or the pine box now bill cameron gary mccarthy is here he's the former chicago police superintendent gary welcome back to the program hey thanks bill great to be on again you missing the job um believe it or not i absolutely do you know i i i've said it over and over again over the last believe it or not five years and believe it or not i'm actually here 10 years now (laughs) 10 years i've been in chicago and you know it was uh it wasn't a job. It was a calling. And um, it kind of felt like my perfect place and time. And uh, it all fell apart based upon, you know, a pretty good 35-year career. Uh, the whole thing fell apart over one incident. And, um, you know, it, it, it's it's hard not to point out how backwards Chicago has gone since that point. Um, because we were making a lot of progress. And, you know, we're, we've got virtually a 100% increase in the murder rate since my termination. So I do miss the job. I miss the, the people, um, even the bad people. I used to have a good time going out on patrol and dealing with people on the street, and there were always good interactions, uh, except for a couple of bad ones. And, um, you know, that's the nature of police work, but I, I do miss it incredibly. Sounds like you haven't gotten over Rahm Emanuel making you a scapegoat for the Laquan McDonald case. Uh, that might be the case. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. Like I said, you know, 35 years of achievement, um, you know, running New York's crime strategy for, for seven years and then 10 years between Newark and, and Chicago running two major police departments in the country. That's 17 years of pretty intense achievement. And, um, you know, today it, it means nothing because it's all gone. And And that's a little frustrating because, Kind of felt like it was it was my life's calling. So, has the uh, coronavirus at least been leaving you and your family alone? Um, yes, it has. Fortunately, um, nobody has gotten sick um, at this point. Uh, so, you know, everybody's getting vaccinated and we're moving forward. And um, hopefully, life goes back to normal eventually. Because uh, I think everybody could use it. It's not just me or you. It's everybody. So. So it's a crazy time. It is. What's the pandemic done to your emerging security consultation business? Um, it's It's been very difficult because security costs money. And, um, you know, take, for instance, the hotel business where, where we had a whole bunch of accounts. And the hotels basically, basically were on lockdown, so they don't need security. So it's the first thing that they cut. So – um, it's, it's been difficult financially, um, but, you know, I, I've been in a lot worse situations in my life, let's put it that way, and we're going to be just fine. Well, let's talk about the jumpy police body cam video of the March 29th killing of 13-year-old Adam Toledo. It certainly produced polarized reaction. Gary, when you look at it, what do you see? Well, you, you know, I don't want to do a rush to judgment, but it's hard not to give the officer the benefit of a doubt based upon the totality of the circumstances. 
So it's and, – and let me just back up. And, and something that I talk about frequently, and, it, and it's really disturbing to me, is that there's a coddling that's going on for criminals, which is empowering them, which is why things are getting worse. And if you've got a, a 13-year-old who's on the street at 2.30 in the morning hanging out with a gangbanger who has a gun and firing that gun, um, and this is a dynamic a lot of people don't realize – is that the quote-unquote shorties, the young kids who hang out with the gangbangers, carry the firearms for them because if they get caught, they don't go to jail. The juvenile justice system is a lot more lenient than it is on an adult, and that's not to say that it's very tough here in Cook County, that's for sure, but it's a lot less tough on, on a juvenile. So, you know, nothing good can come of that situation. 13 years old, on the street with a 21-year-old who's firing shots. And, you know, here the officers get, get called to the scene uh, on ShotSpotter, which is a very accurate technology that, you know, differentiates between cars backfiring and gunshots. And um, here we have it that he's in a foot pursuit. Um, I don't know what the officer actually saw, and I can't predict what he's going to say. But what we're seeing on that video is that Toledo very clearly has a gun, and he's running away from the officer. And then he turns towards the officer, and according to the press, so I know it has to be true, right, Bill? <laughs> Yesterday on WGN, they said that it's eight one-hundredths of a second on the video, real time, where the gun is dropped and the shot is fired by the officer. So, um you know, the officer didn't choose to put himself in that situation. He was brought to that situation. Other circumstances uh, may have been in other people's control, and that needs to be spoken about, but nobody wants to do that because of the sensitive nature of this. And it's it's very troubling to me to see people trying to make it into a bad shooting. And and I'm not I'm not passing final judgment here that it is a good shooting. It appears to be on its face. But at the end of the day, you know, all the facts have to come out and the officer has to articulate why he did what he did. And that's the way the criminal justice system works here. But between that and now, the gang members are threatening to shoot and kill police. And, you know, there's tragic circumstances for what we're doing here by ginning this thing up as much as we can, which is what it appears to me uh, that people are actually doing. And, and. You know, there's some people who are always going to be anti-police. There's some people who are always going to be pro-police. Uh, I like to think that even though I'm pro-police, um, you know, I was a captain in internal affairs, and I locked up a number of police officers, and I fired and terminated a number of police officers over the course of my tenures. So, you know, I try to call balls and strikes. Nobody's doing that now. Uh, there's too much emotion involved here, and, and the anti-police dynamic that's going on in this country. You can't compare this shooting to George Floyd. And and yet that's what's happening. You know, they're all getting lumped into the same, into the same basket. And that's not okay because they're all different. I found it very difficult to make a, a decision about whether it was a good shoot or not after viewing the video, but the rest of the video after the shooting revealed what I thought was trauma also experienced by the officer. Do you see that as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I've spoken about this a few times today, and it's the best example that I could give. No officer that I've ever met in my career wants to be involved in a police-related shooting. 
um, when they are, the trauma that comes along with that, depending on how the shooting turns out, um, is overwhelming. And I, and I use my father as the example. My dad was a World War II Marine who fought at Guadalcanal, New Guinea, New Britain, Iwo Jima, and the occupation of Japan as a machine gunner. This was a very tough man. And he became a police officer in New York City after, after he came back from the war. And in 1953, he got into a big shootout and he killed somebody. And he was absolutely devastated by shooting and killing somebody uh, in 1953 after being in combat for four full years, Bill. So, uh, you know, what type, of a, what, what type of trauma do you think that has on the average human being, let alone somebody like my dad, who is a pretty hard guy? Let's put it that way. So that officer is very clearly traumatized. And, you know, while, while people are offering their condolences to the family, and I understand that, um, somebody's got to start looking out for the cop, too. What is the CPD foot pursuit policy? Well, I don't know if there is one today. I, I was just asked about this last week because they've been talking about putting one together. Um, I, I don't know what that would look like. But, you know, to my knowledge, we didn't have one back when I was a superintendent. But I, I can articulate very simply the vehicle pursuit policy, and I presume that this would mirror it. And, and, the, and the real simple way to put it is the danger of the actual vehicle pursuit has to outweigh the danger of the individual getting away. That's why you would engage in that type of activity. So my presumption is that if there's one that's going to be promulgated, that it's going to mirror something like that. What's the totality of the circumstances? So I've said it there again. Nobody's looking at the totality of the circumstances in this shooting and whether or not, you know, the officer should have or should not have pursued um, Adam Toledo. In my book, he absolutely should have. Got called to a shots fired. Um, obviously, there was a 9-11 call because I heard it besides the shots fired. So that's pretty much confirming that there was something going on. And um, what's the danger to the public that somebody who's firing shots is fleeing from the police? pretty significant. So, and how do you um, make that decision in so short a period of time? Well, it's 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 pretty simple, Bill. I mean, I I literally chase can't even countless individuals with firearms. And he, and here's something that I talked about when I was the superintendent here. Um, you know, when I was in New York, and you know somebody would would have a firearm, the first thing they would do is drop the gun and run, right? Well, well, here in Chicago, what I found out is that they don't drop the gun. And it was explained to me in no uncertain terms that the punishment from the gang for losing the firearm was more significant than the punishment from the criminal justice system if the police actually caught you with the firearm and you went to jail. So you, you got to put yourself in that situation. It's a different dynamic than it was in 1981 when I became a police officer in the Bronx because the sound of a gun hitting the floor or the ground is a very, uh, very uh, particular sound, and I've heard it a ton of times. They don't do that here in Chicago. They keep the gun, and it's a community gun that gets passed around with the, with the gang. So I, I, I'm willing to bet, as a matter of fact, as, as we're having this conversation, that that firearm is going to match up to uh, some ballistics matches with, with shootings or, or shots fired uh, all around Little Village. 
We're talking issues with Gary McCarthy, the former Chicago police superintendent. Um, so many guns on the street and so many gangbangers released, even when charged with gun crimes. Who's to blame for this? Is it judges or is it the black legislators who put into law, um, you know, lenient statutes that the judges would say force them to put the bad guys back on the street? Who's to blame? I, I think it's it's those individuals, but by the same token, it also has to do with the prosecution. You know, people, people so, for some reason, and I don't understand this, kind of shrug their shoulders at a gun possession. Well, possession of a loaded firearm is a gateway crime to committing a murder. And, and that's not how it's being looked at. Um, and, you know, in New York, back in the day, in the middle 80s, when they stiffened the penalties for illegal gun possession, um, a couple of things happened. Uh, the first thing that happened was they stopped carrying the guns, which meant that shootings actually went down. But you know what else happened? And this is something that nobody seems to want to acknowledge, is that incarceration rates went down at the same time. <laughs> they didn't want to get caught with the guns, so they weren't carrying them, which means that they didn't shoot people. And by not carrying them, they didn't go to jail. <laughs> it's, it's the simplest formula on earth that nobody here wants to acknowledge it. And, and I found it when, when I was superintendent and I, and I got here and I took a look at what was happening with gun possessions, um, I, it was, I guess, 2015 we started tracking what happens when we arrest people with a firearm. And in the first quarter of 2015, we arrested 698 people 702 times. Mm. Okay, so in a 90-day period, we arrested 698 people. Four of them we arrested twice in a 90-day period with illegal guns. And on the first day of the second quarter, on April 1st of 2015, 75% of the individuals that we arrested were back on the street. And that's not even saying if they got arrested on March 30th and were back on the street on April 1st. But the thing that blew my mind was the fact that three out of those four individuals who we locked up twice in a 90-day period with illegal firearms were back on the street. How can that possibly be? And you think that, you know, <laughs> you think something good can come of that. No, people are going to die. And, and to try and explain this to people... It blew my mind. And, and when uh, a legislator down in Springfield presented a, um, a, a stiffer penalty for illegal possession of a loaded firearm, the Black Caucus at the time down in Springfield did a parliamentary move and, and tabled the ordinance. And they were very proud about it. And I said to myself, geez, would you, would you rather see them incarcerated or interned? Because that's the result when we don't do these things. And Lo and behold, here we are. It's still happening today at a greater rate uh, than it was happening back a couple of years ago. Now, the mayor and the new president want to do more gun control at the federal level, more background checks, um, more on straw purchasing. Uh, do you see a climate in which the NRA is a little less dominant and we might get some federal gun control done? Or what do you think? No, I don't think it's going to happen. Because, you know, it, it, nobody seems to realize, and, and I, I found, you know, this was another aha moment for me back when President Obama tried to get mandatory background checks passed and 
just to be clear, uh, the background checks were for three people that you don't want to have firearms, one being a terrorist, two being somebody who, who may have some uh, mental uh, capabilities that aren't up to snuff, and the third one being criminals. So criminals, people who have mental problems and terrorists, would be prevented from get, having firearms. Well, that didn't even get off the Senate floor. And I said to myself, how can this possibly be? Because the polling at the time, and I'm not a big believer in polling because, hey, my polling came out pretty good during the mayoral election, and look at how that happened. But um, the polling at the time said that uh, 90% of Americans and something like 82% of NRA members thought that it was a good measure to, to pass. And when it didn't get off the Senate floor, I realized something. I said, this is about money and big business because the gun manufacturers are making billions of dollars with a B by producing and filling the legal and illegal market for firearms in this country. And as a result of that, they pay politicians, in other words, elected officials, they make campaign contributions and so on, um, to not change those laws. And at the end of the day, those senators did not vote in favor of what their constituents thought. They voted in favor of the almighty dollar, which was coming through the NRA um, to uh, the, the elected officials. So it, it, it's not going to change, and it's all about money. And, and I know it sounds a little uh, like a conspiracy theory, but I believe that that's what's been happening in this country, and it's going to continue to happen. And the other thing is the, the rhetoric and the, and the lack of understanding of the issue um, that the NRA has won. They've championed a message uh, campaign that has it that people think that, you know, the, the feds or the police are going to come and take our guns away. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to take away the illegal guns and prevent them from hitting the street. And, um, you know, I, as vice president of the Major City Chiefs Association, I was dealing with police chiefs all across the country. And whenever we would have these discussions at the, at the conferences that we were at, I mean, I think you know where I stand on the issue. And as soon as we would start talking about it, all the guys from Texas would just start shaking their heads. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I would be like, okay, here we go. Let's have the argument. And, you know, afterwards, when we would have the conversations in private and I would explain where it was I was coming from and what my thoughts were, they were like, you know what, Gary, you, you, you're actually right here. Um, you know, maybe I should bring you around and let you talk to the guys. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's have a conversation about it. So it's terrible. Gary, looks like City Hall is going to add yet another layer of police accountability with a new agency yet to be determined for police discipline. What do you think about this approach and what should we be doing to uh, root out the bad cops? Oh, it's real simple. You give the police superintendent the authority to fire people. It, it couldn't be more simple, Bill. Um, you know, this is this is my involvement um, as a paid consultant uh, on something that I feel very strongly about. While I was the superintendent and I was accountable for the behavior of all the police officers in the city of Chicago, uh, I was accountable for their behavior, but I didn't have the authority to do anything about it because I could only make a recommendation to the civilian police board if I wanted to suspend anybody for more than 30 days or if I wanted to terminate them. The investigations into use of force were done by, at the time it was IPRA, before that it was OPS, and now it's COPA. 
right? You just keep changing the name of it, and we think that it's going to make some sort of a difference. Um, Give the police superintendent the authority to do the things that he or she needs to do in the future, and you'll see police discipline change. Um, There's tragic circumstances that we see over and over again, and the one that I wrote the letter to the editor about last week, uh, this guy named Kelly, who had something crazy like 15 complaints in a five-year period, um, three of which he should have been fired for. And then he goes out and shoots his friend in the head, and everybody's shocked. Oh, my God, I can't believe this happened. Well, no, we knew it was going to happen because this guy had a track record of bad behavior, and nobody could do anything about it because nobody was empowered to do it, and the people who wanted to fire him couldn't. So, you know, I made a very simple suggestion to Ron Emanuel back in 2012. I said, hey, we've got the most dysfunctional discipline system in the country that I've seen And my recommendation was to bring in a blue ribbon panel of experts. And and at the time, I still do know, three people who actually wrote their doctoral dissertations on police discipline. And I wanted to invite them in. And they would have done it on the cheap. You know, they would have done it for cost. They would have done it as a a civil obligation, quite frankly. Uh, Take a look at our system of, of police discipline and make recommendations as to what we could do to make it work better. Well, that turned into something called the SAFER report. And if you go back, and I actually encourage you to do it, go back and look at the SAFER report, because it turned into a big pile of nothing. And, you know, there were recommendations in there that were never followed up on. And the the last thing that blew my mind with the SAFER report was the fact that uh, I, I think in closing it said something to the effect of, you know, these are the recommendations that we're making, and we can't go any further based upon a political climate here in Chicago, something to that effect. In other words, the politics was stopping the movement from going forward to create a more functional system. So um, I made a recommendation instead of, okay, you want civilian accountability, you want civilian involvement in in the police discipline system, that's fine. So why don't we make it that the police board makes the recommendation to the superintendent what the discipline should be? And and the superintendent becomes the final arbiter of of the discipline. If that person is accountable, and David Brown is in this position today, David's accountable for the behavior of every officer in the city by the same token he doesn't have the authority to fire them. That's a failed business model. That's Gary McCarthy, the former Chicago police superintendent. As always, Gary, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Bill. It's always great to hear your voice. After a break, a roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. Time for the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Hey, Lynn. Hi, how are you? Ray Long at the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hey, hey, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Sir. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hey, Bill. Well, we've got to start with that very painful and jumpy video, a body cam video of the cop killing Adam Toledo on March 29th. I had to replay it, I guess, a half a dozen times to actually make out what really happened because it happened so quickly 
and I found it extremely difficult to understand who's to blame, if anybody. And, you know, you, you come away with the feeling that uh, it's a tragedy by all participants, obviously Adam Toledo, but also the trauma a cop goes through in a split second trying to decide if the guy he's chasing has a gun and if you think he does, what to do about it. Um, Ray, what was your feeling about it? Well, it's very, very difficult to discern um, what it was like out there in a in an alleyway at 2.30 a.m. Um, in uh, your uh, in a police chase, uh, you see the video. It is uh, grainy and it is fast. What happens uh, where the the cop, you know, uh, if you look at the video at the two minute mark, the police are yelling, "Stop!" The policeman's yelling, "Stop! Stop! Right now! Uh, stop! Uh, show your hands! Drop it!" And in that amount of time, faster than I just explained all that, the kid stopped, dropped, and swung around. And as he swung around, he had his hands up in the air uh, without a gun. And in that moment, the cop shot. And uh, it is it happened so fast that um, there is going to be two narratives, and there already are. One is that... Um, the kid didn't have a gun and the cop shot him. And the other is that how can you be um, really able to get into the, the mindset of what it's like to be running down a, an alleyway, uh, seeing somebody with a gun and then suddenly uh, thinking that it's possible that the kid still has a gun when he, when he turns around and has his hands up, it's, it almost the arm, Throwing the gun down and raising is almost in the same motion, and it happens so quickly that there are going to be arguments about this forever. Greg, what was your impression of the video? Uh, Ray is right that uh, it's very hard to decipher. Uh, it uh, is it's subject to a lot of argument. Um, and it all happened very, very fast. But it, it seems clear from still shots pulled out of the video, uh, if you go it frame by frame, that uh, that, uh, that that Toledo did have a gun at at one point. Uh, that the, the police are chasing him. He gets to a uh, he gets to a fence and uh, and apparently drops the gun because it's later there's another shot later that shows the gun on the ground. He turns around real fast with his arms up. But by that point, this is all happens in under a second. Uh, the cop has uh, decided to shoot. Um, it is, it is an unimaginable tragedy in any number of ways. And it just illustrates that, uh, that uh, we as a state just haven't dealt with these kinds of things that keep happening and happening and happening. And this one brought back to my mind, Hadia Pendleton, uh, the young lady who was shot uh, uh, not too far from where Barack Obama lived when he was president. Um, uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. There's all kinds of fingers to point. Uh, should this kid have been out at 2.30 in the morning at age, at age 13? No. Uh, with a gun? No. Uh, uh, should there be a way where police don't have to chase 13-year-olds and then shoot them on no notice. No, there shouldn't be. Um, uh, 
were this, were this child's needs dealt with uh, in his family and his school and his friends? No. Uh, There's a really wonderful piece in, in the Tribune today by a by a guy named Mateo Zapata who took actually talked to uh, Toledo's friends and, and schoolmates and whatever, and it looks like he just what he needed, he just wasn't getting. You know, it's a tragedy, and we got to we got to stop this nonsense in this city. It's just too much. And Heather, did it seem like a good shoot, a bad shoot, or just a tragedy to you? Well, it was certainly a tragedy, and whether or not it was justified killing will be the, is the subject of an ongoing investigation by the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. But I think that while the video is certainly hard to watch, I, I think it's clear that at the moment that he was shot to death by a Chicago police officer, 13-year-old Adam Toledo had his hands up and was not armed. And I think I still have a lot of questions about how uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Superintendent David Brown presented these the, the fact of this incident to the, the news media before we saw the video. Um, if you cast your memory back to April 15th or April 5th, um, they described Adam dying as a result of an armed confrontation, and I'm not sure that that video um, is clear on that. I also think that the mayor has tried very hard to shift the focus of uh, from Adam's death to systemic issues that have been plaguing Chicago for decades and certainly need to be addressed, but that um, I think try to avoid looking at directly at, at just the unimaginable loss um, and tragedy suffered by Adam's family and really the entire city of Chicago. And for a mayor who was elected in the wake of the Laquan McDonald police killing, um, I think this poses a real threat to her ability to continue to govern the city. Lynn, of course, had led some of the national network newscasts and got a lot of national play. What effect do you think the video will have on Capitol Hill, if any? Well, also, I did it, this is uh, even bigger than national play. I did an interview with BBC this morning, where there was great in, where the whole segment was about uh, the. Uh, the Toledo incident in Chicago. So the, you know, Capitol Hill right now is the house passed the George Floyd justice and policing act in 2021, just as they passed it in 2019 or I'm sorry, 2020. Uh, It passes just with democratic votes and it it was stalled in the Senate in the last Congress. It's stalled in the Senate in this Congress uh, maybe there, you know, this is legislation that would ban really dealing with a variety of uh, ways to address police misconduct, uh, from banning chokeholds to more training to more civil rights training. But the big issue for Republicans was uh, removing the liability immunity that cops have. All this to say, I don't. It is certainly going to be a better shot in a Democratic-controlled Senate. And like everything else, whenever I'm on the program, I'd, I'd say if you want to pass something, you do it in the Biden first two years. But you do it with caution because one of the reasons that Republicans were able to win seats in 2020 is that they talked about not only Democratic socialism, but they hit Democrats for wanting to, quote, defund the police. I think this is going to contribute to efforts to try to re-energize reform in Chicago and try to push that 
harder. And I think that's one thing that will galvanize uh, over this tragedy. Yeah, Bill, uh, the, the, the trick here, like it, like is in other aspects, is to try to find a balance. I mean, the backdrop of this uh, is that uh, is that crime rates in the city are spiraling again. The murder rate is is way up this year again. The uh, number of shootings is way up again this this year, and that's that's just not tolerable. And you know, are police perfect? No. Do they need? To be changed, yes. Do they need some serious reform? Yes. Do they need attitude adjustment? Yes. But to say we're going to defund the police and and have less police at the time when crime rates are going are going through the roof, um, that does that not that doesn't work either. Um, uh, this is a, a terribly awkward thing. I agree with Heather that the, that the, some of the information that the city hall put out initially proves not to be right. Uh, but I do think that the, that the mayor is right with her, in, her, in her core conclusion that the, this is not just a problem of one cop and one kid. This is very much a, uh, a systemic problem that we still haven't figured out. Now, Heather, do you think we'll at least get some changes on foot pursuit policy in the police department? Well, that, I think, um, is probably the most likely outcome of this. And I think it also is important to point out that the uh, Department of Justice investigation that was released in 2017 of the police department flagged the department's foot pursuit policy as non-existent and lacking. Uh, the mayor has been in office for you know quite a while now, and she hasn't done anything about it to this point, which I think is relevant. The other thing that I think that this is going to do is it's going to re-energize um, calls for civilian pol- uh, civilian police oversight board to be elected. Uh, that has been stalled. And to be honest with you, I wrote a story in the, the wake of the George Floyd protests uh, that sort of anticipating that getting new life and becoming law relatively quickly after those protests swept the city, and that did not happen. And we are in exactly the same place as we were in June um, on that issue. So I think there will be an attempt to get that to vote. It's not clear that any of the proposals have enough votes to pass the city council or withstand a mayoral veto, since the mayor says that she does not support the current proposal and has promised to uh, release her own version, what we haven't seen yet. Um, but those, I think, are the two areas where most people think action is most likely, even though it is far from certain. Uh, Ray, one of the interesting wrinkles to the release of the video of the Toledo shooting was that it did not produce riots, whereas the George Floyd killing of a year ago, we all know, produced big riots. Why do you think that was? I think that there was uh, so much uh, uh, effort by faith community leaders, by the uh, mayor's office to reach out to groups like that and also to warn the citizens about uh, the repercussions and also to say that even the Toledo family didn't want um, people to get out there and and riot over, over this. They just want to try to get some calm. There does seem to be, even though this is an intense and very tragic moment here and a lot of uh, edginess in this city right now, there does seem to be less of uh, tension than there was during the whole George Floyd thing. 
Lynn, of course, Biden is pushing gun control, even as the House does that police accountability legislation. Is there any greater chance for gun control because of all this? Well, how many times have we done this? Uh, and, yeah. and, and even just, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, that when the House passed two relatively modest bills dealing with curbs on gun violence and no significant, I think you might have had one, on the bills, you had a handful of Republicans on one of them and none on the other, and they're both stalled in the Senate. And if no other mass shooting has moved things, uh, I, I just don't know why these other incidents are. But you know, this Chicago case is very important because even though you know, the video shows how the split-second decision, uh, what happened in there, there still was a gun involved that the 21-year-old had in his possession. And why that gun was in the possession of that person, why that you know why uh, that young Adam's hand was found to have gun residue on it, uh, all go back to the central issue of too many guns being around, and whether or not there is a change legislatively, I'm not optimistic about because you won't even have all 50 Democrats in the Senate on board. Yeah, Gary McCarthy in the first half of this show was uh, telling me that he doesn't see it happening because he came to realize that uh, the real issue behind uh, stymie and gun control is money and that the gun makers hold the cards and own the Congress on preventing it. Uh, Lynn, this week, uh, Biden uh, said uh, we're getting out of Afghanistan by September 11th. And Congressman Adam Kinziger quickly said, that's a mistake. Do you think there's a political calculation to what Kinziger said? No, uh, it's, it's his belief. He is one of the few members of Congress who was in the military, and he actually had been deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. He said this just uh, will make it easier for terrorists to uh, to remain in Afghanistan after troops leave. Now, uh, the biggest factor in Adam Kinzinger's future, and he discussed this on, on, our, on the Sun-Times political show I'm co-host of at the virtual table, he talked about how the biggest factor in what he does in the future is what his House district looks like when Democrats do remap. Uh, so this is just part of him speaking his mind because he also came out this week, that is Adam Kinzinger, in disagreeing with the, san- the economic sanctions that President Biden decided to put on Russia. We should also talk about the Tribune because uh, since we last talked about maybe uh, the uh, vulture capitalist will not get complete control of the Tribune, it looks like the Trib board still wants to give the deal to the vulture capitalist. Greg, decode this one for us. Um, the excuse the board gave was that uh, the uh, the Alden bid, uh, the venture, the, the rapacious venture capitalist, is fully funded, but the bid from uh, the Swiss uh, billionaire, Mr. Mr. Weiss, isn't, and then some money is there. Um, I don't think this game is over yet. Uh, 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 corporate takeovers is a particular aspect of humanity that you, requires a lot of expertise, but uh, the people who follow this closely tell me that uh, this one is still going to go on and there's going to be a battle. And 
And uh, much as I love Ray, uh, for, for everybody's sake in Chicago, not just the employees, I hope that uh, I hope that the, the, all of it is defeated because it's pretty clear that their idea of running a news organization is to have one guy rip, rip off wires and and, uh, and stick it uh, stick it in the paper, and that's about it. And that would be a tragedy for the city because we all know this because we all do this. Uh, the, look at what the look at what the government and and public officials get away with with us looking at them. If we're not looking at them. Everything that moves is going to be vulnerable. Heather, what's your take on this? How do you think it's going to play out? Well, um, I sure hope for a more stable work situation for all of my friends and colleagues over at the Tribune. Uh, However, I would say that I have unfortunately learned the hard way that billionaire ownership of the news organization is no panacea. And that even if the uh, Wyoming billionaire prevails in his uh, purchase of the Tribune, he certainly is saying the right things, but he would not be the first billionaire to purchase a news organization, say the right things, and then either get bored with it or decide it's too hard and costs too much money. So I think that the challenges facing news organizations across the nation uh, will remain, although um, I think that Chicago is stronger with a strong, stronger Tribune than without. How about you, Ray? It's your publication. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, I've been through a lot of bumpy rides with owners in the past on der- various uh, publications. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, yeah, and, and, and the Tribune, too. And I I see um, a silver lining here, and I'm optimistic. And uh, I've been optimistic in the past, and it's paid off, and uh, I've been around for 40 years. I think we're going to pull through here, and this is going to work out. All right, that's Ray Long in the Tribune. I hope you are right. Thanks also to Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times, Greg Hines of Cranes, and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Next weekend, Mayor Daly turns 79. That means uh, I'll have my annual running of uh, his greatest hits. Don't miss this. Coming up next, my colleague Nick Gale. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. This is Nick Gale. It was a busy week for lawmakers down in Springfield as they handled a wide range of legislation. New legislation would modernize the state's void and concealed carry systems. The bill, an initiative of the state police, makes some much-needed updates, says Director Brendan Kelly. For starters, he says, they want to sync up the void and concealed carry permits into one card and allow them to be renewed at the same time. Additionally, he says... We're requesting that they create an electronic card, like when you get on a plane or get a vaccination or or go to a movie in lieu of an antiquated paper card that can be instantly updated to reduce wait time and communicated by email or by text. The measure also seeks to create an online portal of people prohibited from owning a gun that would be used by law enforcement agencies. House lawmakers also voting for legislation that aims to bring an end to puppy mills. Pet shops could no longer sell dogs and cats from breeders, only from shelters and animal control facilities. State Rep. Joyce Mason of Gurney, a supporter of the bill. These are puppies that are bred in poor conditions, sold out of small cages in the mall, not typically given proper health care, oftentimes sold as sick, oftentimes sold to people at 300% interest. People will still be able to buy an animal on their own from a private breeder. Opponents of the bill say this will hurt mom-and-pop pet shops 
and doesn't really do much to improve the welfare of animals. At issue for Chicago specifically, the Illinois House voting to allow for an elected Chicago Public School Board. There's been a long push for this in the community. The Chicago School Board would be run by elected members under the bill, just like all other districts in the state of Illinois, says Chicago State Rep Will Guzardi. We believe that the same democracy that's good enough in every other district in the city of in the state of Illinois to govern our schools is good enough for Chicago. Currently, the mayor appoints CPS board members. If this were to become law, board members would be elected in 2023 and 2027. Other bills passed in the House include the requirement that sex education include lessons on sexting, the decriminalization of HIV, new legislation that would let student athletes make changes to their uniforms for religious reasons, and a push to have students learn more about Asian American history in schools. For Connected to Chicago, I'm Nick Gale. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News. Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.